Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the high seas of global politics as we do every other week. Today we're going to discuss a topic that we've touched on throughout the life of Altamar in many of our episodes. The rise of authoritarianism, the retreat of democracy, and the concentration of power. Since we started talking about populism on Altamar several years ago, the trend has become worse and worse and worse, and it's all over the place. Country after country has fallen to leaders that have a disregard for liberties and the rule of law, elections, and institutions. We've seen this trend in the USA under Trump, in Brazil, El Salvador, Hungary, Philippines, and so many others in different corners of the world. We'll be joined today by a leading thinker on this topic, one of our favorite return guests and a dear friend, Moises Naim. Peter, it's really interesting. As Russia escalates its relentless attack on Ukraine, there's so much talk of a newly reunited West taking a collective position, presenting a strong front against Putin. But what if this like, kind of lovely idea is overblown? Because countries do sit down for NATO and EU summits, but the public appetite in those countries flocks to extremists once over and over again. So for all the talk about the democratic West resurging and retrenching, were or not, the polls are telling another story. And we have several examples we're going to discuss today. Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with you. And if you look at this flocking, we see it in elections all over the world, and we see it elections, for example, in France. There's an example of an election in which a large percentage of voters have embraced a populist candidate, Marine Le Pen, with incredibly autocratic tendency. And if we talk about Macron, Macron was elected five years ago as this radical centrist. I loved that expression five years ago. But the problem is that the center in French politics collapsed. There is no center anymore. Six years after Brexit, populism in Europe is still alive and kicking in the war against the establishment, fueled by hatred of immigrants and economic struggles, remains strong. And it's not a European problem in Asia. As we mentioned earlier, the repression and assaults to freedom that Duterte has provided, provided in quotes, the, the Philippines may give way to much of the same as Duterte's daughter is running as the running mate of Bongbong Marcos, son of the notorious dictator Ferdinand Marcos. And the U.S. seriously now entertains a second Trump presidency, while Republicans look forward to swearing in as many of, of his extremist supporters as humanly possible in this midterm election. The autocracy pandemic, yeah, and it is a pandemic, is spreading, Mooney. It just keeps on spreading. It seems like it's just like a really, really bad Netflix series where there's so much craziness in the middle of all this. And all of the examples you mentioned were, were basically terrifying. The, the Philippines is one of the most daunting examples that I've seen. But the question then is, has democracy itself lost appeal among voters? And what else do entire populations, many of them already living under repression, why do they vote again and again against the center? Like, what is wrong with the center when the alternative is so complicated? Maybe the answer is yes, immigration and economic slowdown, inequality and corruption, poor leadership from the center and disconnected presidents and 
and prime ministers are fueling a dangerous movement and the underlying factors of extremism have really not changed. Putin is the extreme manifestation of this trend, but there's a lot of hues and several growing examples of extremism all over the world. And the interesting aspect, Peter, which we'll discuss with our guest for sure, is how the same phenomena takes place simultaneously, like what you said, like a pandemic in every corner of the world, despite the wealth of and the level of development of each of the countries. It's as if a contagion of sorts was taking place. I don't know if you read, Mooney, this article in The Atlantic by Ann Applebaum, who's somebody I really love reading. And it was titled, The Bad Guys Are Winning. And that describes how autocracy is taking over a lot of the elections and a lot of the popular votes in the world. How are young people affecting this reality is one of the big questions that remains really debated and unclear. And a lot have been written about young voters disconnecting from politics, and that represents the lowest voting block in the world. Are young voters part of the problem or part of the solution? Obviously, Teos Take is going to solve that question. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Teos Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So, Peter, I'm not sure I will provide all the answers, but at least we'll together admire the problem. So there's worldwide concern about extremism, as you guys talked about. And while the rise of factions on the political left and right has been a long time coming, many are looking at youth to solve this extremist wave. But youth, as a general statement, is apathetic, politically apathetic. While surveys show that most young people are very concerned about global issues such as climate change and the environment, they are not engaged by political candidates and many young people simply won't vote. The patterns of young voters are vastly different if you look at geographically, but they do have one thing in common. Young people's convictions don't lie in the middle. They lie at the more extreme corners of the political spectrum. In France, for example, participation rates have been falling in recent elections with a third of eligible voters of 18 to 25 failing to vote in 2017. And in a striking contrast from political trends in other parts of the Western world, Older voters in France, particularly those older than 70, are more liberal, while younger voters are increasingly attracted to the far left and the far right. More so than reflecting a shift in social values, some analysts say that much of the younger electorate lurched to the far right and left reveals the appeal of economic populism espoused by Le Pen, Mélenchon, and a rejection of the globalism of the status quo. And in America, it's a totally different story. Younger generations have consistently held more liberal views than older generations, especially in recent years. And today, members of Gen Z holds many similar views to millennials, and they both tend to be more liberal than older generations. Even Gen Zers and millennials that are Republican or lean Republican are much more likely to favor government activism, think immigration is good for the country, and think that blacks are treated worse in this country than whites compared to many older generations who don't feel the same way. Young voters are also espousing leftist views, such as wanting a shareholder economy, even socialism, and defunding the police, what's known as cancel culture. So young people may be on completely opposite sides of the spectrum depending on which country they live in, but the commonality between them is that they are on the extremes of the political spectrum. The center is weakening every day. What do you think? Do you agree or do you disagree? <laughs> Let us know. Tweet at Altimer Podcast. 
This is a great topic to address with our guest, Taya. Young voters and their disenchantment are a problem, but worse still are rigged and fake elections, voter suppression and intimidation, and other methods to limit public participation. Different iterations of voter suppression are present all around the world in sham elections that are propped up by weak institutions and illiberal system. Well, let's welcome our guests because we love having Moises Naim on the show. He's just always so provocative and great and interesting. Moises is a globally syndicated columnist whose most recent book, The Revenge of Power, looks at the resurgence of autocratic regimes around the world. Moises writes for La Repubblica and El País, Italy and Spain's most important newspapers, and he's published regularly in so many others, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, and many worldwide publications. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, D.C. has named Dr. Naim a distinguished fellow. Moises Naim, as always, welcome to Altamar. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure chatting with you and Muni as usual. So I know you published this new book as a comeback to the book that you published 10 years ago. Tell us about The Revenge of Power. It's a sequel to The End of Power. The main takeaway of The End of Power was that power had become easier to acquire, to get, uh, much harder to use and easier to lose. It was it's more ephemeral. And, and that applied to countries, to armies, to uh, diplomats and companies and societies and, and cultural organizations and sports clubs. Whatever power mattered, power had become more ephemeral and uh, easy, easier to get but harder to, to use. That was 10 years ago. In there, I said, you know, I never said that power is going to disappear completely. Uh, what I said is that there were more constraints and limits on what people could do with it. Ten years later, we have seen democracy undermine from within in a large uh, majority of countries. In 2011, 49% of the global populations lived in regimes that could be described as autocracies. Ten years later, is 70%. The great majority of the world's population lives in uh, autocracies. And that happened uh, around the world, and it happened stealthily and in a way that it is very hard to detect because all of these new autocrats try to uh, present themselves as Democrats. But at the same time, stealthily and in a very furtive way, they were undermining uh, power and concentrating in their own hands. Tell us a little bit about What's the underlying, this concentration of power that you just talked about? Why is it happening? What's the underlying reason for this concentration of power? It is a variety of, uh, of factors. Uh, there is not one. Uh, if you ask me to identify one that is not sufficient, but it's an, an important one, is what we call the anti-politics. The notion that uh, nothing in politics works, everything now is worse. Uh, their leaders are horrible, corrupt without any capacity to, to improve the, the, the lot of the people. And so that feeling, that sentiment of nothing, you know, is a, a way of political nihilism, you know, everything is bad. It, it pervades, it's a common denominator in a lot of societies. And then you get things like accidents, like uh, the financial crisis of 2009, 2010, in which a lot of people you know, suffered great losses and became uh, very poor. 
And uh, then you have the pandemics, then you have the wars, then you have the displacement of work uh, that due to automation and new technology. So there is so much going on. And, uh, you know, Ortega y Gasset, the famous Spanish philosopher, in 1939 wrote a book. 1939 was a very explosive year in Europe. Uh, and thinking about Europe, he wrote, uh, we don't know what is happening to us. And that is exactly what is happening to us, that we don't know uh, what's going on. So I think now we have a similar feeling. We know big things are happening, the pandemics and the war and the financial structures and social media and Donald Trump and Marie Le Pen. All of these things are happening and we know that will have consequences on us, our work, our family, our company, our nation, but we don't know exactly how. And that is a source of anxiety, of uncertainty that breeds anxiety and anxiety that breeds populism because people want a leader that shows them the way and a leader they can trust. And as you know, there has been a big decline in trust in societies around the world. One of the reasons that this decline has been so large is that Western values are no longer trusted. And there's been a sort of momentary, I don't know if it's momentary, but certainly recent resurgence in Western values with the war in Ukraine. And there does seem to be a united front that is saying, we Westerners, we Democrats, we free people need to fight this. Do, do you think that this united front is ephemeral and naive? Or do you think that something has happened to inject some steroids into the democratic system? I think uh, something is happening and uh, new hopes uh, are, are justified. But uh, we don't know yet. I think it's too early. I think we, uh, we we need to you know hide behind Xu and Lai. He he was a the premier in China, and uh, in in the nineteen seventies uh, he was asked uh, uh, what were the consequences of the French Revolution, and he knew you know he started thinking about that, that and then he said well it's too soon to tell. I think it's too soon to tell what's going on, how sustainable it is. What we know is that one, one important aspect of uh, all of this is that the European Union discovered that it was a superpower and they didn't know it. They discovered that acting in, with unity and acting together in a, you know, in a way that is coordinated, they are powerful. They are very important, can be a, an important geopolitical player that was uh, prevented from becoming that because of the you know the divisions and the polarization in Europe and the fact that it you know it's a big bureaucracy that is running that but then all of a sudden the the Ukraine uh, Putin's war on Ukraine woke them up and they made decisions that were unimaginable that the Europe will do certain things and move in in these ways that, that to assert its role as an important player and that, that's welcome and again let's hope it stays but, you know, it's not, not obvious how sustainable this is. But it's, it's very contradictory, Moises, as the EU is behaving like a very kind of unified democratic institution. Voters in Europe are dangerously flirting with the right. And we've seen that very recently in France and in many other countries that are ruled by extremists and really not so committed to democratic values. What do you think is the main reason for this, not just a shift, but for this dichotomy and how the centrist politicians and parties um, regain some ground? 
Yeah, that's a great question. That's a very important question. And um, in the book, I offer a way of thinking about this that I call the three P's, uh, the P of populism, polarization, and post-truth. These are all trends that have been with us for a long time, but have acquired new potency and new lethality and new political significance in the 21st century. Populism uh, is often confused with an ideology, and it is not. Populism is just a bag of tricks, a, a toolkit for uh, leaders to divide the countries. It's a new way of using the old saying, you know, divide and conquer. And so you divide the nation in the noble people exploited by the voracious uh, elite. Uh, and then uh, there is a, a leader that offers himself or herself to defend and protect uh, and represent uh, the noble people. But now that division that uh, has always been there has been exacerbated by polarization in which there is a bunch of identities uh, and people uh, attach themselves to the identities, to their region, to their age, to their uh, religion, to their gender, to, you know, the list is long and we know what it is. And people have more attachment to their concrete ideology, concrete identity than they have to their own country. And that is polarization in its 21st century version that has been amplified by post-truth which is a new way of calling uh, what you, you, we used to call propaganda. Uh, Hitler had a ministry of propaganda and the Chinese government has that. But now post-truth includes but transcends uh, propaganda and is a way of undermining the capacity of society to look at a problem uh, with some very basic uh, ideas that are shared. Now everything becomes an issue and a debate. You know, who would have said that uh, wearing or not wearing a mask would become a major political issue? And that is, uh, in fact, enhanced by technologies uh, and uh, social media and all that. So populism, polarization, and post-truth are the forces that explain a lot of this surge of uh, right-wing governments that you mentioned. So what about the post-truth? The media has been for, you know, years been considered one of the pillars of democracy. However, the role of media today is different and is more leaning in many places to propaganda, as you, as you just said. How can a free media, the actual free media, operate in an environment like the one that you describe? I am, in fact, optimistic about that because uh, I believe that there is Essentially, we need to combat the lies, the big lies. We, we have to make lying more costly, risky, and difficult for the liars, for the politicians that are lying. Until now, in recent years, you could lie, you can say whatever, and that would not have consequences. In fact, it will help you. Boris Johnson is where he is because he lied about Brexit and he, because he and the Brexiters promised the British people paradise and nirvana out of Europe. That was simply a lie. And they knew it and they even recognized it after the election. Donald Trump is uh, promoting the lie that uh, he won the election and the election was stolen from him. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, essentially lied for months saying that he was not going to invade Ukraine and so on and so forth. You know, you can go around the world and find politicians that just lie to their teeth and that they have no consequences. So it's important to start creating more risks and consequences to the liars. And the way, the reason I'm, I'm optimistic is because I think that in the pipeline are technologies that are going to make the use of the internet as an information channel 
safer. This is not going to be resolved uh, with one uh, one shot, one bullet. It's going to take a lot uh, else. But I think there are technologies on, on the way that will allow us to be more protected. Uh, us, uh, I mean the digital consumers. I think there's legislation that is going to be uh, useful. I think uh, that there is norms and, reg and regulations that are going to be useful. And I think there is going to be a boost of uh, digital hygiene, of people understanding better how to not to be accomplices, uh, you know, of, of spreading fake news and tolerating the, the lies. It's going to take a while. It's not going to solve the problem in its entirety, but it's going to place us at a better place. And I do believe, I strongly believe that we're going to watch a, an important movement towards protecting digital consumers uh, in the same way that in the past, during the Industrial Revolution, as eventually uh, the world developed uh, agencies in charge of uh, protecting the consumer of, of consumer goods, you know, the food and the water and, and the medicines that we consume. So I've learned a new term, digital hygiene. It's fantastic and it's it's very descriptive. Let's talk about how there is a an outbreak of authoritarian governments in different corners of the world that are not necessarily associated with each other. And more importantly, their problems are not the same problem. So France, the US, Brazil, Philippines, El Salvador, they have, you know, obviously things in common, but mostly they are struggling from different ills. And yet they resort to different levels of authoritarianism in order to solve their, their problems. Is this a, a universal failure of democracy or is it some other phenomenon? It's, it's the way you present it. It's exactly the way you frame it. Different countries uh, have different reasons, but they end up in the same place. One of the interesting experiences in, in going around talking about the book of the, the Revenge of Power is discovering that people... Um, will tell you that they, they thought that that would only happen in the country, that this was a, you know, an exception uh, that the country was, you know, you can see it in Colombia, you can see it in Brazil, in Mexico, uh, throughout Europe, in Asia, you know, people think this is happening only to them. By this, I mean the effects of uh, the three Ps in democracy and the undermining of democracy due to the three Ps. So the specifics, of course, as you said correctly, varied from country to country, but the essence, the underlying essence continues to be the, the propensity, you know, the, the, the consequences of the three Ps. And Moises, I have a segment here on Altamar about youth and social justice issues. So I want to ask you a question about that. You talked about nihilism and young voters are increasingly apathetic. And depending on which country they're in, they're often leaning to the far left or to the far right. A concern is that the center is no longer appealing to young voters. How do you see that? And can that be resolved? I, I do believe that there is a sense of direction that the, the new generations are showing us. You know, it is true that they may be leaning right or left, but the majority of them lean towards apathy, towards distrust, towards not believing. You know, many of them have never lived in a, a situation of, with, you know, without freedoms, without democracy. So they will have a surprise if they, around the world, uh, if they, you know, there's going to be a surprise to these youngsters that all of a sudden discover that uh, democracy is being taken away from them. But we have seen wonderful examples. Think about Hong Kong and umbrellas. Think about in Spain. You know, we, we have around the world 
seen examples of youth movements uh, that are asserting their desire to live in democracies. But the danger is that uh, the great majority of uh, the youngsters today have never lived in autocracies. And, uh, and that will make, that makes uh, the, the liars to, to tell the lies less consequences. I want to follow up on Mooney's question about the different regions and the different places in the world and how this is all different symptoms, but it all ends up with the same sickness. So is there a region in the world that you find to be better or worse? I mean, you mentioned Latin America. It's it's an all over the place in Latin America. We've seen it in ASEAN. The Philippine elections are coming. What regions seem to be more resistant to the strain? And what regions are more uh, fall to fall to its? Uh... It, it, these are the regions that have uh, the deeper and more consolidated democracies and the least uh, social inequality. And I'm talking about Scandinavia. The Scandinavian countries are always at the top uh, of a variety of, of, of indicators. They are also being affected by polarization. You have seen in Sweden in recent days. Uh, huge protests and, you know, the issue of immigration is one that is pending. No one has a good answer to that, uh, but it's there. And it's one of the hot issues that is motivating people to take to the streets. Uh, in other countries, you can see the gender issues. You know, who would have imagined Walt Disney, the Walt Disney company clashing with uh, school boards? Just imagine the politicization that's going on there. You know, well, you know, what has it taken for this to be a reality? You know, Walt Disney against uh, school boards. It's happening around the world in very different ways, but at the end, the end result is the same. We would like to end on a happy note, Moises, and and to discuss a little bit the bright spots. You mentioned Scandinavia, but other bright spots that you can see around the world that have models that are working, that have voters that are aligned with their leaders, and that maybe can be a template for the next decades. I would hope that this is not a template, but it's an example uh, for, for you know, is is looking at us. Is hiding in in in, in, in open sight. You know, it's there. The big example can generate great enthusiasm, and that's uh, Ukraine. And you have this accidental hero, President uh, Zelensky, former comedian that ends up being the president and then ends up being the leader of a war against one of the superpowers, and he takes with him the world, and not only the Ukrainians, but he the world is with him. Uh, and, and uh, you know, he has had a lot of support from uh, Europe, the United States and others. They are arming his uh, people. But the main story here is not about guns. It's about hope and about having a leader that can elicit uh, hope and trust. And if it can happen in Ukraine, it can happen somewhere else too. Moises Naim, thank you so much for being with us on Altamar. It's always wonderful to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. Well, Peter, this was a great conversation. And then I was stuck in my head was the, the last part where, you know, it is Zelensky that shines bright in, in a very convoluted world. And then I just wonder, do you have to be invaded? Do you have to be kind of the martyr of the world in order to set an example? And that was a, a very sobering thought. Yeah, I completely agree, Mooney. That was exactly my thought too. And also another thing that struck me because I was sort of talking about 
youth and apathy and the nihilism. And then he said, well, we might see a surprise from youth because when youth sees that democracy has been is taken away from them, they might sort of jump at that. And it's a very positive and optimistic thought, and I choose to follow that. Look, I'm going to inject the negative and down downer note here. I think we are on a downward spiral, and I think his three Ps are completely correct. And the most important one is that polarization is on steroids. It's the polarization plus the identity issues make it unresolvable that we find a way to solve this with democratic comedy. That's why I think he points to Zelensky. You do have to be invaded. You do have to face a crisis. You do have to have a national moment of crisis and doubt to bring people together. And without that, we are just going to continue to go on a downward slope. Because there are no other examples, Peter. So weigh in, tell us what you think. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us.